Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Today's episode is an incredibly difficult case to tell because the victim was a child and the circumstances of her death are horrifying and appalling. Although telling this case is heavy and heartbreaking, it is also critical that this child's story is told. The case of Amani Moss is one of torture, abuse, and hate. But it is also a story of justice. How and why does a beautiful little black girl become the subject of abuse and neglect? And how does this case eventually affect change in Georgia's child welfare system? I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library. Let's uncover the monstrous case of Amani Moss. Amani Gabriel Moss was born April 23, 2003. Amani was one of five children born from her mother. Shortly after her birth, her biological mother surrendered her parental rights to all of her children. She ended up surrendering her parental rights of Amani to Amani's father, Iman Moss. Because Amani's biological mother was suffering from addiction to drugs, Aman was granted sole custody of his daughter. And maybe this was the first mistake in a long string of mistakes, because in 2004, Aman Moss was charged with and convicted of battery and second-degree child cruelty for beating Imani's biological mother in front of her. According to one of Amani's elementary school teachers, Amani was a compassionate, caring, and happy little girl. The teacher claimed that school was a safe place for Imani, and you could always see her smiling. She even tried to befriend the classroom bully. From the stories told by those close to Imani, it seems like she was positive despite her challenges at home. Whenever Imani spoke about her home life in class, she never spoke about any abuse. She only spoke about her younger brother, who she adored. In July of 2009, Amani's father marries a preschool teacher named Tiffany Moss. Iman and Tiffany supposedly meet at Freedom Christian Church, the church that Iman frequently took Imani to. After marrying, Aman and Tiffany had two more children, a son and a daughter. According to Iman, Imani and Tiffany get along well, and there are never any issues between the two. 
Although no records state that Tiffany abused her own biological children, there are records that Tiffany began abusing Imani. There's not a lot of information out there about when this abuse started exactly. However, in March of 2010, Tiffany loses her job because Imani tells a school nurse that she is afraid to go home with a bad report card. You see, she's worried her parents will hurt her. In this same admission to her nurse, Imani also explains that her stepmother had recently spanked her with a belt. The school nurse begins to search for physical proof of this abuse, and what she finds is horrifying. When the school nurse begins checking Imani for wounds, she finds multiple scabs, bruises, and welts on Imani's back, arms, chest, legs, and shoulders. Upon making these horrendous discoveries and hearing Imani's troubling disclosures, she's taken to police headquarters. Tiffany is then arrested and charged with first-degree child cruelty. In her interviews with police, Tiffany admits to hitting Imani. She claims that she hit Imani three times for not completing her homework. Later in court, she pleads guilty and is subsequently sentenced for five years of probation as part of Georgia's first offender program. The plea deal is signed by the Georgia Division of Family and Children's Services. After completing parenting classes, the GDFCS dismissed the case against Iman and Tiffany. After Imani reports the abuse, she is sent to live with her grandmother, Robin, for about six months. During her time with her grandmother, Imani's school performance improved. But this reprieve from her past living situation, one that was filled with abuse and fear, was brief. Because, in the fall of 2012, after fighting hard for the custody of his daughter, the Georgia defects returns Imani back to her father. This had to be terrifying news for Imani. Just imagine being ripped from what is finally a safe place, just to be placed back with your violent parents, who are most likely angry that you reported them in the first place. How can the Georgia defects permit this? It seems so obvious that this wouldn't end well for this poor little girl. Robin fights and fights to retain custody of her granddaughter, fearing for Imani's life. But no matter how hard she tried, Imani's grandmother Robin could not convince the authorities to grant her custody. As you can probably assume, after Imani is living with her father and stepmother again, the abuse continues for years. According to the Gwinnett Daily Post article, Imani tries twice to run away from home in July 2012. In one incident, Tiffany reportedly ran up to an apartment officer where they lived and told them that she wanted to run away because Tiffany had tied her up with a belt and forced her into a cold shower. The police respond, but when questioned, Tiffany says that Imani made the whole thing up. And because there isn't enough evidence to charge them, Imani is returned back to her father and stepmother. In another attempt to run away from home, Imani flees the apartment and tries to find a safe place to hide. In July 2012, a police officer finds Amani sleeping in the bushes of a nearby apartment complex. When the officer asks why she is there, Amani says that she ran away because her stepmother was being mean to her. The officer reports this incident to the Georgia defects. The officer also files runaway and curfew violations against Amani. Everything up until this point has been horrendous, from the abuse to the runaway attempts, to the blatant disregard by the system for this black girl's well-being, but what is absolutely egregious is the fact that this little girl, who has suffered from years of abuse, has done the right thing and reported it, despite her countless fears of retaliation, and has now been made to be the problem, the troublemaker. The years between 2011 and the summer of 2013 were spent on the move for Imani. You see, Imani and her parents moved around a lot. Sometimes they would stay with family members. However, when the Mosses lived on their own, Imani would rarely see her extended family. And in May 2013, when the Mosses go to visit Iman's sister, Sharonice, for Mother's Day, 
some strange things occur that concern Imani's aunt. When Imani and her father and stepmother arrive at Sharonisa's house, Imani's aunt and grandmother, Robin, notice that all of Imani's hair has been cut out. Obviously, this seems odd to Imani's aunt and grandmother, so they confront Tiffany about this, and Tiffany reportedly says, quote, If you act ugly, you should look ugly, end quote. And the new haircut wasn't the only thing that seemed strange to Imani's extended family. According to a Gwinnett Daily Post article, Sharonice also notices that Imani is acting more timid than usual. Not only that, but Imani's grandmother also notices that Imani is extremely thin, so thin that you can see her bones protruding from her shoulders. During this visit, Iman and Tiffany tell the family that they plan to pull Imani from public school and move to homeschooling at the end of the academic year. Sharonice objects to all of this and calls the Georgia defects to intervene, but they declined. On August 6th, an anonymous tip came into the Georgia defects, claiming that Amani was being neglected and starved by her father and stepmother. And what happens next should not be a surprise. Apparently, the Georgia defects do not visit the home or conduct a follow-up due to, quote, having no current address and no current maltreatment, end quote. If you're thinking things don't get worse for Amani, you'd be wrong, because what happens next is only what I can describe as evil and hateful. The last time Imani would see her aunt and grandmother would be on Mother's Day of 2013. In the late summer of 2013, Tiffany and Iman moved their family to an apartment in Lawrenceville, Georgia. According to District Attorney Danny Porter, this was when, for all intents and purposes, Imani vanished from the face of the earth. According to statements made in court, Iman was largely absent from his daughter's life during this time period. He worked two jobs and he would leave for his first job early in the morning and briefly return in the late afternoon, but then leave for his second job around 6 p.m. He wouldn't typically return back home until 10.30 or 11 at night. This meant that while Imani's father was at work all day, Tiffany was the one left to take care of the children. It's unclear when it began, but Tiffany began starving Imani, and according to prosecutors, the starvation most likely lasted several weeks. During this time, Imani was forced to be confined to her bedroom, all alone and scared. Apparently, Tiffany's biological children were allowed to leave the house. Neighbors claimed that they never even knew Imani existed. Eventually, Imani became weak. She was so weak she couldn't move from her bed, or even urinate and defecate. Although Tiffany was starving Imani, she never starved her two biological children. Multiple times, Tiffany would send pictures of meals she prepared for her two children to her husband, Amani's father even claimed during the trial that Imani would eat a lot when he saw her on the weekends. Tiffany would even ask Iman to pick up cookie dough on his way home so they could make cookies. At trial, prosecutors pointed out that Imani would have to lie in her bedroom, in pain from overwhelming hunger, smelling the cookies baking in the kitchen. According to the medical examiner who testified at the trial, the process of dying from starvation would have been incredibly painful. Amani would have first experienced hunger pains, then fatigue, significant loss of energy and weight, and finally, death. On the evening of October 24, 2013, Imani suffered from what was believed to be a seizure, according to Iman Moss. Iman testified in court that when he returned home, Tiffany told him that there was something wrong with Imani. He then entered the bathroom, and there, he found Imani in the bathtub, shaking. She was unresponsive, her eyes rolling back and forth, Aman then moved Imani to her bed, where she stayed for a couple of days. 
During these couple of days, Iman claims that he visited her often and tried to even feed her, but his attempts were unsuccessful. On October 28, 2013, Tiffany called Iman at work to tell him that Imani was dead. At trial, Iman testified that when he came home, everything seemed normal. The kids were playing and his wife was watching TV. He found his daughter in her bedroom laying on a blanket. He claims that he told his wife that they should call the police. He also claims that she insisted that they couldn't call the police. If they were called, she would lose her children. Tiffany tells Iman that they had to hide Imani's body. So what does Iman do? Does he say, no, I love my daughter and I will do no such thing? Does he rush to call the police? No, he does none of these things. Instead, he helps Tiffany by wrapping Imani's body in blankets and moving the body to their computer room. And for several days, this is where her body would lay. Her father and stepmother kept her body in the apartment and went about their lives as if everything was normal. At the trial, Iman claims that he would go to work, and then when he came home, he would spend time with Imani's body grieving. Tiffany and Iman worked together to cover up Imani's murder. According to an article in the Gwinnett Daily Post, the day after Imani's death, Tiffany went to a place called Anna's Linens to purchase new sheets and a new coverall because the ones that Imani had used were soaked in urine and covered with excrement. Tiffany suggested that they bury Imani and report her as a runaway. Imani's father went to Home Depot to buy a galvanized trash can, trash bags, charcoal, and lighter fluid. On Halloween day, the couple decided to place Amani's body in the trash can and burn it. But when they tried to place her body in the trash can, they realized that her body was stiff. This was because her body had already set into rigor mortis, so they used duct tape to compress her body. Then her father covered her with a comforter, and the couple together stuffed Amani's body into a trash bag. November 1st, in the early morning hours, Tiffany and Amon took the trash can containing Amani's body and packed it into the back of their car, and with their children with them, they found a place to burn Imani's body. Once they found a secluded place, they removed the trash can from their car, placed charcoal briquettes at the bottom of the can, doused Imani's body in lighter fluid, and set it on fire. As they watched her body burn, they discovered that the body didn't turn to ash, so they extinguished the fire, took the trash can, and Imani's body, back to their apartment. The day after they attempted to get rid of Imani's body, Iman went to work with her body still in his car, he ends up confessing the crime to his friend, who urges him to call the police. After their conversation, Amon seriously considers calling the police. When he returns from work that night, he decides to make the call. At 4 a.m., Iman calls the police. In this call, he says that he is suicidal. After the call, he tells his wife Tiffany that he called the police, and immediately, Tiffany places a trash can with Amani's body in it in a grassy area near their apartment complex. Then, she puts her children in the car and flees. When police arrive, Aman tells them that Imani consumed some chemicals and died. He claims that he panicked and tried to cremate her body in a trash can outside the apartment. Police find the body, but they don't believe Aman's story. Aman and Tiffany Moss become suspects in the murder of Imani. According to the Gwinnett Daily Post, Aman Moss is arrested almost immediately. While Aman is being arrested, Tiffany is dropping off her children at her mother's house, and after leaving her children with her mother, Tiffany turns herself in. Upon turning themselves in, Amon confesses to attempting to cover up his daughter's murder by reporting her as a runaway and trying to burn her body. In 2015, Amon pleads guilty to felony murder and concealing a death. He is then sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. 
In exchange, he agrees to testify against Tiffany. Meanwhile, Tiffany rejects a plea deal that would have allowed her to be sentenced to life in prison, so the case against Tiffany goes to trial. While Amon is incarcerated at the Smith State Prison in Glenville, Georgia, Tiffany Moss's trial is beginning. On April 15, 2019, Tiffany Moss's trial began. Although she was appointed lawyers, she decided to represent herself, despite the judge's efforts to persuade her otherwise. While she represented herself, she kept her defense attorneys on standby to answer any legal questions. And during the court proceedings, the judge urged Tiffany to rely on her standby attorneys, but each time, she refused to do so. In court, Tiffany didn't provide an opening statement. In addition, she didn't even cross-examine any witnesses or provide a closing statement. This is incredibly odd. It's almost like she didn't care about the end result of her trial. But if she didn't care, if she wanted the worst possible outcome, then why didn't she take the plea deal or confess to all of her crimes? It's almost like she wanted the theater of a trial, like she wanted the attention. During the trial, the district attorney and assistant DA called many of Amani's relatives to the stand. In total, they called 18 witnesses. Some of those witnesses included Amani's grandmother and aunt and Amani's fourth grade teacher. Her fourth grade teacher, Lisa Neal, made these remarks in court about Amani. Quote, she was precious. It was a blessing to have her in my classroom. She was a wonderful friend to every student, even a bully that she tried so hard to be friends with on a daily basis. End quote. On April 29, 2019, Tiffany Moss was convicted on all six counts, including one count of malice murder, two counts of felony murder, two counts of cruelty to children, and one count of concealing a death. The jury deliberated for less than three hours. What's interesting is that during the trial, Tiffany declined to address the jury or present mitigating evidence. Not only that, she also declined to have her relatives who attended the trial to testify on her behalf. During the state's closing argument, the district attorney argued that she should not be given an opportunity for release. He said, quote, She's shown you too much of her capacity for cruelty. There will always be a dark side waiting to come out. End quote. Tiffany's sentencing was on May 1, 2019. The judge agreed with the jury's recommendation. The judge sentenced Tiffany Moss to death by lethal injection. This made Tiffany the first person to be sentenced to death in Georgia for over five years. Judge Hutchinson scheduled her execution date for between June 7th and June 14th, 2019. However, due to the appeals process, the execution did not occur during this time frame. Despite declining previous representation at her initial trial, Tiffany did accept representation for her appeals process. Her defense attorney filed for an appeal on the basis that Tiffany was not competent to act as her own attorney. However, I find this attempt to appeal pointless. I doubt that Tiffany will never see her execution date, given the amount of evidence stacked against her. Just because she wasn't capable of representing herself does not make her less culpable in her crimes. Supposedly, her attorneys argue that Tiffany has, quote, neuropsychological testing data that showed the defendant to have damage to the premotor and prefrontal regions of the brain, end quote. This seems like they may be trying to argue that Tiffany Moss was suffering from psychological problems at the time of Amani's murder. Tiffany Moss is currently incarcerated at Arendelle State Prison. She is also Georgia's only female death row inmate. At the start of this episode, I told you that this case would impact Georgia's child welfare system. And after much due criticism of Georgia's child welfare system, changes were made. An intake case manager, a social services administrator, and a program assistant for the Georgia DFACs were fired, and reportedly others were disciplined. 
This murder case led to reform actions including deeper investigations into allegations of abuse and changing the way they address maltreatment reports. In addition, more case managers were hired to reduce the workload, and agency workers no longer decided whether reports warrant an investigation simply based on information gathered from a phone call. And finally, no report is considered less serious or low priority until a caseworker meets with the allegedly abused child. In 2018, Amani's grandmother Robin filed a lawsuit against the Georgia DFACs. In her suit, she argues that caseworkers were aware of the abuse and could have acted earlier, and from my research, this all seems valid. Time after time, the abuse was reported. There was even physical evidence on Amani's body. She resorted to running away and sleeping in bushes. She alerted authorities multiple times, and still, Amani was murdered by her abuser. From where I'm standing, her murder isn't a result of following protocols or of not having enough evidence to remove her from the custody of her father and stepmother. From where I'm standing, this is blatant disregard and indifference for the life of a little black girl. After researching this case, I'm not sure where I stand with Amon Moss's culpability. It's obvious that he helped try to cover up her murder, but was he aware of the abuse Amani was enduring from his wife? Did he truly believe that Amani was being fed regularly, despite her relatives noticing the depleting condition of her body? How did he not notice the gaping disparity between the treatment of Tiffany's other kids and Imani? It's pretty clear that Tiffany Moss worked diligently to murder Imani Moss. Her cruelty and hate towards Imani is apparent and frankly unfounded. There's nothing this little girl could have done to warrant abuse and murder. One thing that is for certain is that Imani Moss was virtually failed by many of the people who could have easily helped her. From her parents, to the Georgia child welfare system, to the police. I'll leave you with a clip of Amani's grandmother, Robin, speaking about her pain from reliving her granddaughter's death during the trial. A lot of times when, I, when you saw my hands in my, my face, I'm praying, you know, asking God to give me strength. Just strength just to carry on because it's hard. It's hard to see the pictures of her. It's hard to relive all this stuff. And as soon as you think you just got that much of healing, it all comes back. And then it's like you got to start all over. If you'd like to listen to more episodes of the Lost Crimes Library, you can find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at the LCL Pod for any podcast updates. Remember, sharing is caring, so make sure to share this podcast and also leave a review. It helps a lot. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any new episodes. This episode was written and hosted by Nisa Henderson, and it was produced by Channing Tapp and Nisa Henderson.